Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, psychologist Jonathan Haidt uh, writes a lot about behavioral change, and he often uses the metaphor of an elephant and a rider. I talked about this a little bit in the fall, but because it's so incredibly significant, I want to come back to it. He uses the idea of an elephant and a rider when it comes to human behavior and how we look at it. He says that in many ways, it looks like maybe the trained elephant is under the full control of the rider. It grows where the elephant wants, the rider can steer it, uh, the rider can sort of navigate with the elephant, and it kind of looks like the rider is in charge. He says, in reality, if that elephant has a hungering to eat something or to drink something or to go in another direction, that elephant is going to follow its appetites. That elephant is going to follow its desires. That elephant is going to go where it wants. In, In hate's opinion, he says, and he compares that to human beings. This often we as human beings think that we're mentally in charge, that we cognitively can control ourselves. But he said, in reality, there's a lot within us that sort of our appetites, our passions, our desires simply take over. In many ways, that is sort of the critique or the observation that we can look at for our culture at large. One of our slogans in our culture is, you be you. And what does that mean? It simply means that whatever you desire, whatever you feel welling up within you, whatever your soul is most connected to, whatever your urge is, you simply be you. In fact, the most authentic way that you can be yourself is to simply follow your passions and desires. Sometimes if people are vulgar, if there's some sort of incident that happens, It simply said, well, they were just being authentic to themselves. They were just being who they are. And so we as a culture sort of have this idea that, that yes, it's just our passions, it's our desires, it's our internal feelings that kind of have the most control over who we should be and what we should do. And to do anything other than that is to be inauthentic. What I love, friends, about Jesus is that he's so right down the middle. He doesn't say, yeah, let me just put a lot of, inject a lot of truth into your brain. Let me just give you a cognitive dump and your life will be completely different. Neither does he say, follow your passions, follow your ambitions, follow whatever the raw, most raw urgings you have. Jesus neither says, hey, it's just intellectual information Nor does he say, it's just urges. Instead, he says, you follow me. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. We're looking at a passage in John chapter 16. And in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples. In John 16, 17, he says, at this, some of his disciples said to one another, here's what I want you to understand. A disciple is simply someone who follows somebody else. That's what a discipleship is. Often when I talk about being believers of Jesus here at Southridge, I talk about followers of Jesus. 
That's kind of stripped down language for simply saying disciples of Christ. A disciple is simply one who follows. Discipleship is the practice of following after, of orienting your life towards someone. And so Jesus gathers these disciples around him. And over the course of three years, he's not simply shouting information to them. He's not just saying, hey, here's cognitively all that you need to know. Instead, he's actually taking them and making them his full life disciples. He's shaping their hearts. He's shaping their souls. He's dealing with the interior parts of who they are. He's telling them the truth about God. Jesus makes full life disciples. Sometimes I say we want gospel-shaped hearts and minds and gospel-directed actions and attitudes. We want gospel-shaped hearts and minds. We just don't want information about the gospel poured into us. We want it to shape who we are. We want it to shape our passions, our desires, our urges, our appetites. All of that relates to the gospel. It's not just informational. Then we also want gospel-directed actions and attitudes that what we do, the attitudes that we have flow from what the gospel is all about. We want gospel-shaped hearts and gospel-shaped actions. Interestingly enough, even in this passage, Jesus is giving them truth about himself. But as we looked at last week, he's also talking about grief. He's talking about sorrow. He's talking about joy. And so Jesus is not saying, hey, what you feel, the emotions that you have, kind of what happens in your soul and spirit is irrelevant. No, he's talking to the whole being. He's acknowledging his disciples will have grief. He's acknowledging they'll have sorrow. He's also saying there's a path to joy. And he's also saying, hey, look, here's the truth about who I am. It's what I love about Jesus. This morning, we're going to Look at John chapter 16, verses 23, probably through about 25. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, and we're going to dive into some stuff pretty deep and wrestle through some things that I think are pretty cool. Uh, you can open your Bibles and turn there. I would highly encourage you to do that, uh, to take some notes, underline something, write a little word down, uh, highlight, whatever you want to do. Uh, grab the message series little notebooklet and jot some notes down as well. This morning... Jesus is basically saying to his disciples this. He says, no matter what barriers or obstacles you face, you can be absolutely certain that I'm at work in your life. You can be absolutely certain of that. You can also be absolutely certain that when you pray to the Father in heaven, he will receive, he will receive that prayer and he will respond. He says, number one, you can be absolutely certain about the story of your life how it fits into God's plan. And you can also be absolutely certain that the God of heaven hears you when you pray and is responding. First thing, he says, you've got a certain story. You've got a certain story. What do we mean by that? In verse 23, uh, this is right after Jesus has already expressed the fact that their grief will be turned into joy. He talks about a woman being having pain in childbirth, but that giving birth to the child. When the child comes, the, the uh, pain goes away. So it's in that context of Jesus referring to his death and resurrection, the grieving and the joy that Jesus says, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Uh, that's verse 23. Now, honestly, the way that this works out, sometimes our translations don't really help us in how things are organized. Uh, because in many of our, our translations, that little phrase, 
in that day you will no longer ask me anything, it's kind of connected to what happens next, to what Jesus says next. It's actually much easier if you connect that to what he has already said. Uh, part of the reason is this. There's two different ways that the word ask comes across. There's actually two different verbs in these verses that Jesus uses for ask. The ask, when he says, in that day you will no longer ask me anything, that's asking a question. That's asking for information. A little bit later on, when we look at the verb ask, it's a different verb, and it means asking for something, asking to receive something. So this ask is asking for information. It's asking a question. And Jesus says, right after he's, listen, right after he's done with saying that grief is going to be turned into joy, he's referencing his resurrection. He's saying, you're not going to ask me anything. A couple things. In that day, in that day is referring literally to the day that he's raised from the dead. And then that whole era of him ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit coming down. And that day, you will ask, again, the word ask has to do with information. It's not a, re a request for something. It's a question. It's information. And that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Now, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. He's saying, in that day, when I'm raised from the dead, you're no longer going to look at me inquisitively and say, how does that work? You're no longer going to look at me inquisitively and say, we just don't get it. Jesus is literally saying, in that day when I'm raised from the dead, the pieces of the puzzle are going to be put together and you're going to be able to finally see what I'm talking about. You'll be able to see the big picture. You'll no longer ask me anything. Maybe I can kind of put it this way and might, might help a little bit. Suppose you had a friend coming to visit you and that friend lived in a, a tropical climate. It's the only place they've ever lived in their whole entire life, a tropical climate. And maybe they came to visit you, say, the end of August and there was a lot of rain and, you know, things were lush and green. So they came, they get off the plane, they come to your house and immediately they say, man, like this is incredibly beautiful. Like all the trees are just lush with green leaves. There's flowers that are blooming. It's amazing. It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly picturesque. What an amazing place you live that's just vibrant green and filled with life. And maybe you said, well, like a eh, like little warning. Uh, in New Jersey, we get this thing called winter, which you don't get in a tropical climate. And in winter, it gets like pretty cold. And in fact, you say, winter's going to come and you won't see one single leaf on any tree. Winter's going to come and you will not see a single petal of a flower. It's going to be harsh. It's going to be dark. It's going to be cold. It's going to be barren. But after that, it's going to kind of like sprout again. And you'll see all the stuff that you presently see now. And they're like, no way. They're like, like how does that work? They're like, no, it's not going to happen. You're just like, yeah, it will. Like, just wait and see. And so September comes and the leaves start to change color and fall. And the leaves start to fall. Uh, December comes and now the leaves are gone. And then like today comes and they're like, you got to be kidding me. Like it's like, there's not a single leaf on any tree that's green. There's not a blade of green grass. 
I mean, winter has killed everything. And they're like, this is unbelievable. And you're like, but spring is coming. They're like, like, it is so dead. Spring can't possibly come. You're like, spring is going to come. And sure enough, April will come. May will come. And what's going to happen? There's going to be green leaves. There's going to be blossoms. Flowers are going to grow. Flowers are going to sprout. Fruit is going to grow from the trees. The barrenness of winter is going to give way to the life of spring and summer. And listen to me, at that person, at that time, the person that came here from the tropical climate is going to say, no more questions, right? Okay, like I've seen it. Like now I know what you are talking about. I may not know every little detail of how that works, but man, I've just seen the story of seasons. I've seen with my own eyes, death turn into life. I've seen with my own eyes, barrenness lead to blossoms. I've seen with my own eyes, absolute lifelessness bring about fruit. I've seen it with my own eyes. No more questions. Now I know how it works. It's exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. In a little while, I'm going to be crucified. And up until now, you just haven't been able to get it. We all kind of have selective listening, right? So you read the Old Testament and, you know, the Old Testament writers talk about this coming Messiah who's going to bring restoration and redemption and new creation and justice and righteousness and peace and all that kind of stuff. And there's some things about like suffering and giving his life and death and it's all that, but you just kind of like naturally gravitate to the life, the rejuvenation, like you kind of gravitate to that. So Jesus is going to die. Three days later, he's going to be raised again. And the disciples are going to be like, oh my goodness. No more questions. Like now we get what you've been saying. And now we get that when you said you were going to die, but you're still going to give us life. Like before, like we could not make heads or tails out of it. We couldn't make, we couldn't figure out how a winter would lead to spring. We couldn't figure out how you're saying that you're going to be crucified and, and you're going to give, like, like those pieces just didn't fit. Now, now we, but no more questions. Yeah, I still don't get the little pieces of things that I see, but, but no more questions. Now they see, wow, crucifixion led to resurrection. Death leads to life. Listen, friends, the same is true for you. Your big story is figured out. You and I probably have lots of questions, lots of questions about how all the little pieces fit together, but your big questions are answered once and for all. Your big questions are answered once and for all. Listen, When it comes to the resurrection, everything hinges on that. There are a lot of reasons why I believe the Bible. I believe the creation account that, because so far, like science has never figured out how like something can come from nothing. That the complexity of life can't simply happen accidentally. We all know that. Anything that's complex is by design. Our I believe the Bible because it explains our world. It makes sense out of both pain and joy. It makes sense out of horrific injustice as well as justice. It just kind of helps us. And, and it, it, the reason I believe scriptures, it explains life like nothing else does. 
But the primary reason I'm a follower of Jesus is because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe historically, Jesus rose from the dead. And friends, listen, that defines everything. That defines everything. Sometimes I say, the lens that you look through will be the lens that you live through. Jesus being raised from the dead changes absolutely everything. Listen, if I find out in the next five minutes that Jesus did not raise from the dead, and you should too, ask for your offering back, head out the door, and sleep in next Sunday. Really. If, if we find out between now and one o'clock that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, any of you who are volunteering for Esther students Sunday evening, like forget about it. Any of you who serve in SR kids, any of you who lead a life group this week, any of you who are planning to serve somebody else this week, if we find out this afternoon that Jesus is not raised from the dead, cancel your plans. Get your offering back. If you contributed a year in giving, ask the church for a refund. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, it changes everything. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead and you're sad and depressed or if you have mental health issues or emotional challenges, you are sunk, friends, if Jesus did not raise from the dead. You just are. But if he did, if he did, your story is certain. You may have small letter questions, but you know, have no capital letter questions because he raised from the dead. If you're planning to be kind to somebody this week who's otherwise kind of a jerk, if you're planning on loving somebody who is sort of on the outside, cancel your plans to do that. Climb to the top of the ladder and step on as many people as you possibly can if Jesus is not raised from the dead. I mean, it's just how it works, right? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, Southridge closes this afternoon because it changes everything. I can just kind of see the disciples nodding. Wow, the outcasts are loved. Now that you're raised, now that death works backwards, that makes sense. The lost are being found. The blind can see. The lame can walk. The guilty are forgiven. The righteous are declared righteous. The unrighteous are declared righteous. The, death, the dead are raised to life. Now it all makes sense. Listen, friends. What in your life right now is sort of has the, the greatest say, the greatest influence over your perspective and attitude? What do you have to stare straight in the face that are the facts of your life and say, instead of simply staring straight into the face of these circumstances, I'm going to stare first straight into the face of the resurrection. What narrative of your life does the resurrection need to replace? How does the hope, the confidence, the assurance, the joy of the resurrection need to replace something that you're presently focused on. And then secondly, as I've already alluded to, man, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, why sacrifice? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, here's my best advice. You be you, right? 
If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you be you. Follow your basest urges. Follow your most base desires. You simply be you if Jesus is not raised from the dead. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, don't sacrifice money. Don't sacrifice your time. Don't sacrifice your focus. Don't sacrifice your desires for the good of anybody. If Jesus is not raised from the dead. Jesus says, in that day when I'm raised from the dead, you'll ask me no more questions because it'll all fit into place. You'll still have little questions, but the big story will finally make sense. Listen, friends, live in the certainty of your story that Jesus rose from the dead. Secondly, not only certain story, but confident prayer. Confident prayer, verse 23, after he talks about what we just said. Uh, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete. A couple things. He says, my Father will give you. Do you ever feel like the Bible sort of oversells and underdelivers when it comes to prayer? Like anybody kind of feel that way sometimes? Like you got kind of get these blanket promises in Scripture that Jesus is like, ask anything and I'll give it to you. Anybody feel like Scripture kind of oversells and underdelivers? Yeah, like sometimes I do. He says, whatever you ask, that's pretty broad, isn't it? Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask in my name, that's what he says next. Whatever you ask in my name. When he says, in my name, he's, he's talking about the fact that he would ascend to the Father in heaven, and he, he would then be mediator between ourselves and God the Father. Uh, at the cross, he would take sin and separation that we presently have from God on himself. And so Jesus would become mediator so that we could actually connect to the holy God, so that sinful people like us could connect to the holy God. He says, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Jesus was directly with them. They had not prayed to the Father in Jesus' name because Jesus had not yet paid for sin to become the mediator. And so until Jesus becomes a mediator, then they're going to go to the Father in Jesus' name with Jesus' permission because Jesus' righteousness is given to them. Then they have access to the Father. And so the way that you pray to the Father in heaven is only through the person of Jesus uh, because your sin is covered, your sin is forgiven, you're given the rightness of God so that you can then engage directly with the Father in heaven. Y'all, part of in my name is also with sort of with my authority. And that that's kind of shapes what you might pray for or how you would pray for it. A scripture tells us that sometimes our requests aren't answered because of selfishness. And so it kind of filters. am I praying this for my glory or for God's glory? And then he says, ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. Isn't it interesting, friends, that he connects joy to prayer? Um, I confess that one of my things as a pastor is I wish I would be better at praying. I really do. And I think God has grown me significantly at that. I think he's continuing to do that. I continue to have just more joy in simply spending time with Christ. But overall, I think for most of us, and that certainly includes me, 
I don't know that prayer would be on my list of top five things that give me joy. I don't know, is just that too honest? Like most of us have to discipline ourselves to pray. Am I right? We just kind of like do. And so it just strikes me that Jesus connects joy to prayer, which kind of means I feel like I'm missing something and just, I honestly, it's just, a, I want to keep pressing further in because I believe this is there. Like I, I would probably, I'm going to trust what Jesus says rather than sort of my experiences. And so that's one of the reasons why I keep pressing into prayer because like I want to get to hear what Jesus says should be the case. But here's where I think this is all headed. Jesus says, you ask and you receive. I think there's three ways that we receive. There's three ways that Jesus says yes. And kind of where we're headed with this is, is listen, friends, I think we're too quick to say that God answers some prayers and not others. Here's where I want to go. Sometimes God says yes at our face value request. He says yes to face value. An example, if you pray the Lord's Prayer and say, God of heaven, give me today my daily bread. God has already answered that prayer for me this morning at face value. Some of you, coffee may be your daily bread. And so if you drank coffee, you answered that at face value. And maybe it is your daily, I don't survive without it. He gave you your daily bread. Like many times, God actually responds, yes, to our face value requests. Father, provide for my needs. Provide me with something to eat. Yes, we have something to eat. God, sustain my life. You go home and you click on the thermostat and your house warms up. Friends, that's a direct yes to a prayer. And not that they're just that small, but they're pretty. My sense is if we actually were a little bit less independent than what we were, we'd actually be praying more and rejoice more at the ridiculous number of yeses that God gives to us at face value. Many of us pray for safety in the roads. How many of us actually have joy when we get there and say, God, thank you for giving my face value prayer request? It's a lot of face value stuff. God also says yes, sometimes in a bigger picture sort of way. A, big, a bigger picture sort of way. I remember when Coretta Miners passed away. Before she passed away, she was part of our church. She had cancer. I remember her being back at my office and she said, you know, prognosis is not good and looks like you know, my life on earth is going to be shortened. And I remember we prayed and we talked about Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says this, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Listen to this, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. God did not say yes to the face value request, but he said yes to the bigger picture. I remember talking about that with Greta. And she said, you know what? God will answer our request for healing 100%. He absolutely will. 
He may not answer it in this lifetime. Listen, friends, if you have a physical issue, if you have a mental health issue, if you're struggling emotionally, God will 100% answer yes, because he's the God who heals all diseases. Pray that you receive healing at face value in this life. But even if you don't, God's answer is one gigantic yes, and you will be healed. That's the story of your life. Death leads to resurrection. And so sometimes it's face value. Sometimes it's the bigger picture. You believe in a God who heals all diseases. 100% end of story. That's who he is. Then there's another one. Sometimes God says a yes in changing me. His response is still 100% yes. May not be yes at face value. We may not even be able to see the bigger picture yes. But there's some sort of yes that's behind your request. He's actually fulfilling a desire of your heart. I remember talking to somebody just a couple of weeks ago and they were praying about something, praying about it together. Later on, I got a text. They said, the peace and comfort I feel from the Lord, even in the hard moments, has deepened and strengthened my walk with him. I can't even imagine going through this and not being able to turn to him with all that is in my heart. They didn't actually get a face value, yes. But their request did end up with the work of God, the work of God, Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit doing something in them. And I ask uh, Donna to come up and we're going to lead into communion. And, and I, want you to, I don't want you to tune out here. I want you to track with me here. Because Jesus makes this request, ask and you will receive. In my humble opinion, we got to take scripture at face value. And yeah, we may get some nose to face value requests. But I literally believe that any request you pray in Jesus' name gets a full yes. It's going to be face value. It's going to be bigger picture. It might be changing you. Jesus' prayer life interests me. Just go through a couple of prayers that Jesus prayed. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus prays for a full night. Anybody ever pray for a full night? You don't have to raise your hand. Do you pray for a full night? I mean, like praying for all night is a big deal. Jesus prays all night. You know when he does it? He does it before he, cho- he does before he chooses his 12 disciples. I would think that the God of heaven and the person of Jesus praying to the Father for wisdom in choosing his disciples, I would think that would guarantee a 100% success rate in the disciples you choose. One out of 12, which is a little over 8%, betrayed him. If I'd be Jesus, I'd be like, Father in heaven, you spent a whole night praying for my, for, that I'd make the right choice. 
and 8% of them betray me? You got to be kidding me. Well, like somehow Jesus' prayer about choosing his disciples was a gigantic yes. Even though one in 12 betrayed him to be crucified. And Jesus could still say, ask and you'll receive. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prays that prayer three times. What's the face value of his request? Spare me from death. I don't want to go to the cross. That's the face value of that prayer. The writer of Hebrews says this. And he's referencing these prayers that Jesus prays in the garden. He says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Remember, he sweat drops of blood in the garden. He's praying so weightily to the one who could save him from death. And he was, guess what comes next? It says, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. So the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was praying in the garden. And I don't know, when I read the gospels, like he wasn't heard. Because what I read in the gospels is, he prayed that, God, spare me from death. So I would read the Gospels. Jesus got a no. He got a face value no. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus prayed and he was heard. He was heard. He was heard in the bigger picture. By the way, it goes on to say this. So, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Oh, so God said no to this and said yes to this. And even friends, even in the life of Jesus, said yes to this. There was no sin in Jesus. But somehow, through God saying no to the face value, he was like, Jesus, my son, you're actually growing in submission and obedience to the Father. Friends, that blows my mind. It just blows my mind. It blows my mind that Jesus prayed a prayer and at face value, it was no. But friends, listen, God always 100% of the time answers yes. Not the face value, yes. But whatever request you pray, somehow God is going to use that request to bring glory to himself. It's not just flushed down the toilet. It's not just gotten rid of. Like your prayer is heard and responded to. Might even 
be the work of God in changing you. Third prayer, we'll look at in a couple of weeks. John 17, Jesus says, Father, I pray for all of those who will follow me that they would be one. Question. (laughs) When you look at the landscape of Christianity across our world, would you kind of classify it as one of being unified? (laughs) Not so much, right? Like, I don't, I still don't know how the Father in heaven is answering that request. For the record, I've never waited 2,000 years for a request to be answered. Jesus prayed that request 2,000 years ago. And I, for one, believe that God is still working to answer yes to that request, right? 2,000 years. And we get upset if we pray and six months, six years, or 60 years go by. Jesus says, pray, and you will receive. Somehow in the grand scheme, God is saying yes to the guts of your request. Might not be how you recognize it. Might not be how you see it. Some of it will be at face value. Much of it won't. But the disposition of the Father in heaven is to answer yes. We're going to celebrate communion together. Because communion is represents Jesus becoming our mediator. It represents the no answer to Jesus face value request and the yes to his bigger request. If you uh, didn't get some elements as you came in, please raise your hand or ushers would love to give you elements. Can peel back the cellophane to get the wafer. The gospel writers say that Jesus took these elements to remind his disciples and remind us of his death, his broken body, his shed blood. We invite anyone who embraces Jesus as their savior to participate with us in communion. Maybe if you've never done that, now would be the perfect time to simply just embrace Jesus as your Savior. I want you to hold the wafer in your hand. Do you realize, friends, do you realize that Jesus' prayer was that his body would not be broken? His prayer literally was that you would not be holding the wafer. God said no to Jesus' face value question because he understood that at the roots of it all, Jesus desired a yes to the longing of his soul to have you more than he desired a yes 
to escape death. God said no to Jesus' face value request so he could say yes to Jesus' deeper longing that you could belong to him. If if God would have said yes to this, you wouldn't be holding a wafer. You wouldn't belong. But the Father in heaven knew that the the real deeply yearning of Jesus' soul was for you to be his son, to be his daughter. So he said no to this so he could say yes to you. Let's take the wafer together. juice represents the blood of Jesus given for us. It's something again that Jesus requested that he be spared from. It's a request again that the Father in heaven said no to the face value so that he could say yes to the true request that was underneath the request. He knew that the longing of Jesus' heart was for creation to be restored, for renewal to be brought into humanity. And so the Father said no to this and yes to this. Let's drink the cup together. ask our team to come out and we're going to sing a song How Deep the Father's Love. Listen, friends, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, there were no more questions. Yeah, we've got little questions, but the big questions have been figured out. How deep the Father's love looked at the cross how deep the Father's love looked to the resurrection. So let's stand and sing this together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. To make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns his face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory
Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed, said, Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, God bless and have a wonderful day. Be certain of your story and be confident in prayer. God bless.